You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. This is the podcast that is by rural leaders and for rural leaders. It is our goal every single week, week in and week out, to bring you content that is not just spoken to the rural church, but is spoken by people who get it, people who know what it's like to live, work in, and minister at churches that are in small, out-of-the-way places. I am your host, Joe Epley, and today we get an awesome opportunity uh, to be live and in person with Pastor Dennis Rivera. He currently serves as the uh, Hispanic Relations for, and Ethnic Relations actually, liaison for the Assemblies of God Fellowship. And uh, before this, he served in all sorts of roles from pastoring to uh, superintendent uh, of an entire language district, which is really a regional position that affects churches across multiple states uh, centered in Colorado. And so I'm excited to dive into his experiences and uh, what he has learned from that. Uh, but the first thing I want to do is just say, Pastor Dennis, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. It's it's a good day, good morning, and uh, I'm just glad to be able to, to partner with you on this and, and have this conversation. Yeah. Well, good. I'm excited as well. I think uh, there's nothing like when rural leaders come together or when leaders come together, really, and share, share their thoughts. You know, I know that uh, whoever listens to our podcast, I know that I feel like the one who's always getting the most out of it. You know, I'm learning a ton. <laughs> yes. But uh, as we do with most of our guests, or all of our guests really, is we love for people to hear a little bit of your story and who you are. And so, would you take a second, walk with us through your background in ministry, kind of your journey, and uh, how it has connected or overlapped with the rural church? Yes, thank you. Yes, um, well, I I, I started in ministry uh, when I was 21 years old. I graduated from Latin American Bible Institute where I met my wife, Naomi. From there, uh, in 1977, we went and, and our district superintendent appointed me to pastor a church in Pocatello, Idaho. wasn't rural, but it it uh, it was reaching into the immigrant community, especially. I think my church in in Pocatello was 99.9% immigrant. Um, I think I only had one or two people that were born in the U.S. And that was that was prob- probably for me. I call my boot camp. From there, we actually reached out into a very rural community. Actually, two. Um, Aberdeen, uh, Idaho, and American Falls, and started a work, uh, basically use renting a facility. So that was kind of at least my first opportunity to really experience a, a small church or rural church. I was born in uh, I was born and raised in Salt Lake City. I think I might have mentioned that. So I was I basically grew up in a, a larger city. So from there, three years after Pocatello, we felt God was moving us, and we ended. Uh, our superintendent actually held an election, and I was elected to pastor in Cortez, Colorado. Cortez, rural, uh, southwest Colorado. Um, population about 8,000, maybe, you know, counting the county of probably maybe 20,000 in the county, but our community was about 8,000. And that was the place that we stayed for 21 years. Um, that was the place that really, I think our ministry really flourished. Not that we didn't see a great move of God in, in Pocatello, but by the time we you know, had reached uh, or moved to, to Pocatello. I think I already had a, a little bit of, of, of insights into ministry, uh, a little bit more about knowing about myself as well, uh, maybe my rhythm in, in ministry. So, um, you know, we, we, uh, we had four kids that were born. Uh, well, one was born in Pocatello, but three were born in, in, in uh, Cortez. And uh, the congregation was young. 
it was uh, bilingual, probably stronger English speaking. So for me at that point, um, I basically moved the service into an all English uh, language service and then later on started an all Spanish service separately because I felt like to try to do it bilingual was uh, was maybe a little bit difficult, maybe for, for the vast majority of the people. So, uh, but we spent we spent 21 years. I, I believe that God gave us a, a real heart for Cortez, and I think the one thing that we saw was uh, a lot of young families. Uh, we saw um, opportunities to to really begin to reach into the community. I think throughout the years that I was there, one of the, the advantages we had, I, I, I saw it later, I didn't see it at the beginning, was our building was right next door to the high school. Mm. And um, so I, by then, you know, three or four years into our pastorate, we actually started construction on a new facility um, that took us a couple of years. Uh, so we moved there in 1980. By the 1986, we had a brand new facility. So what was happening for us and what kind of opened the door for us to at least engage our community was we had high schoolers that would hang out in our parking lot and especially in behind the church. They did a lot of mischievous damage to our building. Nothing huge, but it was enough sometimes to maybe to kind of annoy us a little bit. So not, not seeing the harvest field, I basically, I remember, this is just an experience I'll, I'll never forget, we went over to the high school and asked them that maybe it would be a good idea to close that gate. <laughs> and so they, we told them what was going on and, and they, they agreed. So they sent a team over and they welded a gate up, to weld a, a, a new gate on that, uh, that, what was called the north entrance. Um, but it didn't take but three days and the gate was on the ground. The, <laughs> student, the students took the gate down and we were right back. Then my youth pastor kind of had one of those moments where he looked at himself and said, "What am I doing?" He said, uh, "This is my this this is my harvest field." Yeah. So he asked me, "Can I invite these students inside of our building, and and dialogue with them? Maybe feed them lunch or do something?" And he just thought it was that he would at least uh, start a dialogue with them. Well, that started what turned out to be a twenty-year-long uh, ministry called Power Lunch, and every Wednesday. For 20 years at Evangel Assembly in Cortez, 150 high schoolers would come over and have lunch. Wow! And we uh, engaged other youth pastors in the community, so uh, various churches would come in and fix the lunch, and various youth pastors would speak to the students. But it was it was a powerful and an engaging uh, moment for us to see what God was doing, and to realize we almost missed it yeah. <laughs> because. So, you know, when you're in rural, when you're in a smaller city, your church can probably have a bigger footprint. And so we began to, not only, not only did, did we have opportunity there, but um, I, we, we worked around a lot of our Native American uh, uh, families and cultures. Uh, we had uh, not only the Navajo tribe, but the Ute Mountain tribe, which brought a lot of, of alcoholism to our city. And so... Um, one of the other things that we did, um, we would do park outreach. Um, we would do anytime we had an opportunity to to engage people outside of the building, and I was really really strong with that. And our people would would, would were really by then the church had, had seen a, a lot of spiritual awakening, so they would get engage in ministry on the outside as well. So the result this resulted in us beginning to know these men. We began to know their names. We began to know who they were. Once in a while, they would stop by our church. But what really, really made an impact was 
not only did we have a, a, a spiritual awakening and a, a revival that, that was very impactful, but then when we saw one in two of these men perish, literally in the cold, because they would just pass out uh, drunk, that, that motivated our men. And so as a result of that, we found a, a, an, a, an abandoned, well, it wasn't abandoned, but it used to be a Bible school south of town, had dormitories, and, and the men of our church went in and completely uh, revamped that, built it so that we could do ministry there. And then every evening in the wintertime, they would go out and pick these men up, wow. take them there. So there would always be certain people working that night. That went on for a few years. And then finally, over time, we began to lose some of the people that were able to do that. But that, that kind of ministry uh, was also very impactful. You know, so I guess for, for us, the other thing that I think was important for me in a small town was that I always engaged the other pastors. I, we, we built a, a, a network that would meet every week to pray for our city. Uh, and that probably that went on the whole time that I, we were there. I mean, I, I suppose it didn't begin in the first couple of years, but once we were kind of settled in the community, and I didn't know the, the ultimate impact of that. It was so encouraging. I, being, being that I spent 21 years there, I saw almost every church change pastors once or twice. Hmm. And I would have pastors come to me and say, Pastor Dennis, I don't understand. You, you're now becoming one of the longer serving pastors. Yeah. What, why? What, what makes you stay here? Yeah. And for me, Joe, at that time, I began to really see in my own heart. I had a real love for the city. I, I told them, you know, the, reason, the thing that keeps me here is I, is I love this community. I have, a, I have a burden, I have a compassion for the city. Because a lot of people would tell me, you know, this is, they, I had people tell me, we used to do this big passion play, a big drama that would bring out oh, sure, yeah. about a thousand people every, every Easter uh, over various days. And some people would say, how we, they would tell me, you know, this is just a, they'd say, this is just a one horse town. I mean, how, how sure. in the world did you guys do this? Well, I, I think a lot of that was because we, um, we had just a lot of a lot of people engaged in, in helping us, and I have to admit, we you know during the earlier years that I was there, Tommy Barnett was about a seven-hour drive in Phoenix, so I would take a lot of our team down to Tommy Barnett's pastor schools. Oh, cool! And those pastor schools were all about soul winning, inspiring you yeah. to do. It. And yeah. So it wasn't long before we had some buses and we had some vans. Sure. And we were with that ministry still continues to this day. Uh, my children's pastor later on became my assistant pastor and now is the senior pastor Jeff McDonald. Uh, they still run buses. Uh, they still run. Well, they run more vans, the bigger vans, every Wednesday. And so we had we had trailer parks around us, and and so we had lots of children through the doors of our church throughout those years, that later on became adults. After I had left there, even long after I had left there, I began to see that some of those younger people were now in in leadership at the church. Oh wow! And so, yeah, so that 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 I think for for us it was the most enjoyable experience. Sure. Uh, when we got there, there was no Walmart. We had right. a Kmart. There was only a McDonald's, as far as for national sure, chain. Sure. Uh, but then when they built the Walmart, we felt like we had arrived. And then yeah, when they yeah, built yeah, the yeah, Wendy's, you know what I'm cool, talking about? Cool like town, su yeah. su suddenly we became the hub. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. We, we didn't have to run to Durango or Farmington, New Mexico. Sure. But but I felt like uh, pastoring that church uh, in a small town it helped us 
maybe see the larger picture of our church and the needs in our community. So right. that's it, I think. Well, yeah, and then after that, obviously, you got kind of an immediate chance to then uh, influence a larger picture. How, how many years did you spend as superintendent of kind of that region? I spent 16 years. We were elected uh, superintendent in 2001, and we were there till 2017. All right, so then I assume from there you came to the national office. Yeah, and, yeah, and then we came to the national office in 2017. Yeah. So just wider and wider spheres. So uh, what I love about this story is, one, um, what a cool just set of experiences to share. I have always been a fan of longevity in rural ministry and the, and the power it has to affect communities. And we'll touch, I'm sure, more on that later. But, uh, but for now, I kind of want to highlight the fact that you've spent now, you know, 23-ish years or 22 years kind of getting to sit in one of those bigger picture type seats where you are now interacting with a multitude of churches across, you know, a large geographical area. So from your vantage point, what are the struggles do you think that face rural churches generally? And maybe even highlight one or two struggles that you feel like face you know, maybe some Hispanic or ethnic congregations specifically. Well, I had a, you know, once I became superintendent, I, I was covering six states. Because we were a Hispanic district, years ago when our district, our district became a full district in 1972. And one of the things that I saw was I could almost track where our churches were based on agriculture, realizing that, as probably most know, that a, a lot of the immigrants cr- that crossed the border from the south or maybe even some of the Hispanics that have been here generations, seemed to, a lot of them for uh, would, would find work in agriculture. So sure. they would settle in a lot of the smaller communities. But because that was that was something that had happened in the er, you know in the early part of our, our district life. Later on, I began to see that as so that th- that was obviously those were opportunities to open churches. Families were living there, people were moving there. Sure. But then later on, as technology began to take over a lot of the agricultural work as sometimes processing plants closed, things shifted around, all of a sudden we begin to see um, those community, those churches begin to struggle hmm. because people were moving away from, from that. So that, the big challenge I saw was to keep the church vibrant and strong when you were starting to lose people. Yeah. Um, what started out maybe at one time, and, and I could almost you know, it was, Joe, I could, I could, when I first, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I was part of our district all of, really all of our life from my, from, since my family were a part of a church that was in the district. But when I would visit churches, I could almost date them. And I could, hmm. I, and here's what I would, I would say to my wife. I said, I could tell the last major, the major time, I could date the carpet, I could date things, and that was the last time that church was probably thriving. Wow. Yeah, you could because they stopped yeah, in the 80s, right, the early right, 90s, yeah, right, the late yeah, 70s, right, you know, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, so you could see by the decor. Then after that, you could tell they were just sustaining, trying to right, sustain the right. place, right? So but so that was the challenge that I saw happening for, for these churches. I think now at, at this role now, um, I'm working with 14 Hispanic districts now with 24 ethnic fellowships. I think many of our districts are now starting to see that it's not so much that people that have been there for a long, long time, but major shifts in, immigra- in immigration. You'll find lots of people from a certain part of, of Latin America will all land in a community where there is uh, maybe uh, like the chicken plants in Arkansas or other, other kinds of, of maybe agriculture or maybe meat processing plants. They'll move there in masses. 
Hmm. So that becomes an opportunity to open up a truly ethnic language church. Sure, yeah. And One where there's so, yeah, a certain language spoken and all those things. Right. Yeah. And so that kind of shifting is happening across the, the, the nation now. And again, you're going to find maybe a larger church in a very small community. But that's still, that probably is going to be an, a language church. Sure. Spanish or maybe some African languages as well. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. And honestly, uh, uh, what a highlight, you know, because I think a lot of people would, would emotionally identify with, yeah, an industry leaving or, or, yeah, just the natural ebb and flow of population. So I do want to switch gears. So obviously, again, you get to be front seat to a lot of stories of both church struggle and church failure, but also church growth and church success. And so what have you seen in rural churches that are doing well? You know, what, what, what does it look like? What are those qualities? What's happening there? What kind of leaders are there? You know, like, give us some insight on what we can do to also kind of maybe generally understand that success. Well, I, you know, I can, think, I can think of a church in um, the San Luis Valley of Colorado. I had a young man named James Archuleta, still there. James came from, he was, he was actually raised in, in um, what's called, a town called Alamosa, Colorado. Then he went to um, a Bible school back east and stayed there for a long time. Not, I, I probably, he must have stayed there about 10, 15 years. Then I get a phone call and James says, I feel like the Lord is calling me back to the San Luis Valley. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, that's great. I said, because we're, we're really struggling to keep a pastor in, especially one of the, the, the one church that was still, had somewhat thrived. But he, he said he, he did not want to come a pastor in any particular church but maybe take over his uncle's church in a really, really small, tiny, almost just stop on the road. And I was a little bit surprised because he seemed well prepared, but he just had this real burden for the valley. Sure. When he got there, uh, it turned out that his uncle wasn't ready to, to actually turn the church over. Oh, sure. And I had a church in, in what's called Center, Center, Colorado. So he was willing to at least take over the church or at least interim at that church. But it turned out that 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 did not become just interim for him. I think that the thing that I could probably identify in James was that he knew in his heart God called him back to the valley. Mm. He could have gone anywhere. So as a result, though, he as he engaged the church and center, he began to know them. He began to actually, I could tell that he began to get really comfortable um, he knew the culture because the San Luis Valley are a Hispanic culture. They're bar- they're very bilingual, but it's a strong culture of, of its own. Sure. And so the, now he's been there. He's been there. Well, he's been there for probably about 12, 13 years. That church is thriving. They have a new. They got another facility. Um, uh, expanded that facility. He actually from there is taking care of another church for us in in the church that my parents grew up in in Atlanta, Colorado. And also his uncle finally passed away. So he's kind of like now the pastor of the valley. Oh, sure. So I see that as successful in that he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't deterred by the fact that he was disappointed. You know, he was going one way, kind of like Paul going, going here and the spirit says, no, go here. Sure. So then, and then he, he ends up there. And now he's, you know, really pastoring the, the valley. Um, he's helping start a school of ministry, um, and again, he's upgraded things for that for that congregation. For us, at least for me, I see him as really um, 
heard the call of God and God God sent a person sure. that would love that community and that's that that's so I, I see that as a success yeah and it seems like um, I think a word that I would pull out of there for our listeners is the word flexibility you know obviously church is looking a million different ways <clears throat> but it's it's up to us when that call comes to say okay I will go and even if it means that it starts one way and goes a different way or if I start here and then end up pastoring this direction or start with this community and another community like to be willing to flex in a small town feels pretty crucial you know in terms of how we do long-term success right right that, that's good that's a that's that's a good analogy um, so I guess uh, you know I, I really loved when we were on the phone we kind of took a detour a bit of a conversation into uh, you know, and I, I think I was surprised because in my context, it doesn't happen very often, you know. Uh, obviously, our conversation involves, you know, a situation where a church might have the presence of two distinct ethnic groups, you know, or maybe there'd be need for specific ministry. But uh, in, in many rural towns, it can be quite homogenous, you know, very, very much one appearing, you know, culture or one perceived culture. Um, but I really loved, you know, you talked to me about, about that moment that happens when a church that has truly two cultures begins to grow. And you advise pastors, you know, to take certain steps to meet that need. So walk us through that process. If there is a church that, that has multiple groups in it, you know, what have you advised some pastors to do? Well, you know, what we've, we, the, I think we've had a good experience in working sometimes with what would be our geographic districts sometime in, in certain communities that they have the building, the facility, but then you have a large group of Hispanics that have moved to the community. And so that pastor has a heart, says, say, hey, let's reach out to them. There is not a Hispanic church here. And so often they'll open the doors, maybe help that church get started. But the, one of the things that I've, I've always suggested to those pastors is to keep their, keep their, um, um, keep a, a loose hold on a church that's very strongly ethnic in, in language because what you want to be able to do is it's, it's almost like adopting them like like adopting a child but there's still going to be the real life experience that they're going to grow up they're going to develop what you want them to do is is develop especially within their own culture and language sometimes that's the one thing that that we've discovered I mean in my own, my own experience is that um, many times the ethnic churches uh, have have a, a worldview that's differently. They have, they they have a, they have a different view of time. I've even said when you bring in a, an ethnic congregation, they might want to be in church every night, or yeah. they might want to use your building three or four times a week. And and for some pastors at the beginning, they thought, well, well, that'll just wear, really wear our building out. But I said to them, really, what happens is the church not only is their spiritual connection, it's their social life, it's their family. Because in many cases, you know, they're not as engaged with the, with the community as much. Sure, so they, sure. they create their own community. So then I ask them, in time, if, if you see if it grows and however you decide to do it, some people will just get a translator from the beginning and say everybody's just listening through a translator. Sure, sure. In time, if it's possible, as a leader is raised up, if you can raise up a pastor, bring in a pastor, uh, go to two services. Mm. Have one service in your... In, in, English, obviously, and, and allow another service in Spanish. Mm. To me, bilingual services over 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 a long period of time are are a little bit difficult. You have to preach half a sermon. Um, um, people that understand both languages, it's kind of tedious to have to hear it both. 
and, and then sometimes people that know both languages are always just judging the translator whether he said it <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, they're not know, So they're not, they've, lost, they've <laughs> lost focus, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. And uh, the application I, I see from that is, uh, I think, again, our small towns, uh, I think sometimes if we think, oh, I, I don't have an ethnic language group, I don't have two distinct you know, ethnic cultures, it's like, well, there's plenty of distinction in cultures. You know, there are groups that are all have a shared experience. There's groups that are all, you know, whether it's like elderly or a prison ministry or addiction ministries or uh, a certain demographic of, of workers or a certain field, you know, that, that seems to be predominant. And I, I think these principles apply pretty readily. You know, these people might be looking for community, but maybe it's okay to say, hey, what if we hold on loosely? What if we let this take on a life of its own? And what if we eventually make a distinct room you know, or space for this to happen. You know, I think sometimes on a Sunday morning we're we're so focused in a small town and saying, "Man, I gotta hit everybody." But what if at some point you don't, and you make you make something that adapts so fully to a certain group of people it's trying to reach that maybe the church will double and grow just from just from that kind of intentional effort. So, yeah, I no, love hearing yeah, your experience. Yeah, that's you're that's 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 right. You know, we we've, we've got a district right now that is actually challenged. They're a Hispanic district that are challenging the leaders are challenging all of their congregations to start an English-speaking church because Hispanics, their younger people, are now bilingual and some of them speak less Spanish. So they're, I think they're taking on that challenge to have a second church inside their church. And I said, you literally double the size of your district if they if they become yeah. full churches later on. Right, yeah. right. No, that's cool. Well, the last question I want to kind of ask you, and I think you've alluded to a little of it when you were talking about uh, you know, connecting with other pastors in your town over 21 years. But I want us to dive into this question more fully. Um, if I asked you, you know, because uh, obviously, I mean, just taking your roles now, you're talking 22 years here, 21 years there, three years before that. I mean, we're, we're approaching 50 years. Have you hit 50 years in ministry? No, no, not but, quite, I'm, though. I'm not, but I'm getting you're close. Getting there. I'm getting close. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so my question is, what is some wisdom that you've lived by that has sustained you over such a long ministry career? Because one of the things I know is that it's hard enough for pastors to make it, let alone rural pastors at times, you know, can feel even doubly challenging to stay in it. And so what encouragement or wisdom could you pass on to them? You know what, I think, I think I'll go back to, to, to Cortez, the longevity of Cortez. I, I feel like when I saw other pastors that would be very discouraged, sometimes, sometimes the culture of a small community is really strong. And sometimes pastors will come in and they're really trying to change that culture. I think, I think all pastors that are listening here today know one of the most difficult things to do is change culture. Sure, it's not sure. impossible, right? But sometimes you know you're you're there because you're trying to shift. That's why sometimes, you, it, sometimes it would be easier to go to a second service or maybe a more contemporary service, uh, and the traditional service, or maybe young people, or maybe that language service. But for me, I think rather than be overwhelmed by the culture, maybe by sometimes the battles you're facing, the things you can't change. I think for me, uh, and I, I think I shared this with you, it was the times that I would leave town long enough to get um, refreshed and to rest. Um, and and, 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 that, and I, I began to, because when you're there long term, you begin to notice that when you go out, and then when I would go out, maybe go to a conference, or we would go someplace that I would be learning, or I would be at least challenged at another level, all of those things would, would reinvigorate me and I always remember after I've gone a couple of weeks somewhere or a week, depending on where I'd been, but just to really disengage. Every time I, I was driving back into town, I was excited about coming home again. Mm. I, I wasn't as weary about things. Um, 
so that became that became important to me i think obviously some of those things some of the very things that you battle the the, the most intensely and maybe that's culture things that you know maybe is not healthy those things a lot you really wrestle it out in prayer and you really you really go after god for that the other thing that i think that kept me uh in in cortez was really i i loved i loved my community I remember, in fact, even even there was a season that I was in the, I would go into the jail, and I would preach in the in the local jail uh, like every Monday night. You know, even that was refreshing to me, and I'll tell you why. Because I felt like I had a I had a congregation that was like hungry and wide open, and uh, so that sometimes I would joke with my church and say, I really enjoy Monday nights better than being here on Sunday <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the thing about it, I think, is just simply. Uh, the the love for the community, the ability to just uh, engage other areas. Um, I, I would talk to pastors later when I was superintendent that wanted to leave after two or three years, and I'd say, I said two or three years, you're just barely getting to know the community. They barely yeah. start to trust you in two or yeah, three years. Yeah, honestly. And you're going to move on and start that whole process again. And I said to one pastor, I said, don't you love this community? I mean, is is that is, is that already in your heart? And and this is what he said to me, and I was I was taken back. He said, I've pastored many, uh, I don't know, he didn't tell me how many churches, because he was already mid-age. Sure. I think he said he probably pastored four or five churches. But he said, I've, I've never been in a city that I've loved. Wow. Then I said, well, in my heart, I said, that's why he moves on. Yeah. You know, he, he, he and I might even say, it goes, sometimes, you know, pastors get frustrated with their church. Yeah, you know, it's things, hard. Things aren't it's difficult. going in the right direction. But I, I say it's hard to get frustrated with the, the fact that your vision is for the lost in the community because they're still there. Those yeah. people are out there. Yeah. They're hungry. So that kept me engaged as well. Um, um, I, so I feel like, I, you know, I, I would probably say that was probably the reason that I would stay. And, and honestly, when we were elected superintendent, we, we cried our hearts out because we really had never looked for that, never aspired to that. Sure. When it happened, we, we, we cried because we were going to leave the place that we thought we'd spend the rest of our life there. Yeah, honestly. And, and so, but what's, what I'm excited about, I'm going to actually be in Cortez this weekend. Oh, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah. They're going to burn the mortgage on uh, a second mortgage because we were debt-free when we left, but they built a, a new gymnasium, a new uh, life center. They're going to do that. And so I've been invited to come and, and share in that, that experience. But I think it's just to see that the church is still doing well. Mm. And Jeff, who had been with me, is not like me. I mean, in many respects, sure, sure, the, church, yeah. the church is doing well, and I'm very grateful for that. So, and, I always, and I'll say it, we still love Cortez. We yeah. pray for Cortez. That, that's probably been, you know, that's probably been one of, for me, I, I, if I could just encourage pastors, I'm not saying that that God doesn't take people there for a short season. Sure. But uh, I would say stick it out because sometimes it takes you it takes you 4 or 5 years before you really became become part of the community. You're not an outsider anymore. Right. And it takes that long for you for even you to feel like it was the previous pastor's problem. Yeah. Now you're saying I'm fully engaged in in the needs of this church now. So that's that's been that's been my experience, and I, I feel like I feel like the pastors that I that I and, and I as I've seen as well leading from a from a district office, the pastors that stayed are still staying long long term. I think that's probably true with most of them. 
Yeah. All of them will, will talk about their community with excitement. They talk about their city and they talk about, I think others have sometimes said you can measure your church not by how many are in the pew, but how many still need to be reached. Oh, wow. Sure. So that's yeah. a good measure. Yeah. I also think we have to give some credit to the process of, of choosing to love your community. You know, when I moved to uh, the small town that I spent the last 10 years in, um, I did not like it. I mean, like I had come from a bigger town of 120,000 to 1,200, and uh, it was a huge culture shock, and I hated it. Just really, at the start, it was not my thing. But um, I got some sage wisdom from a few close people, including my wife, actually, <laughs> I just said, man, if you're not gonna love it, then then you got to get out of here. But but I just challenge you to love it, you know. And I and so I think pastors, you know, as far as the process, sometimes it's about learning to see things, and we do this in other areas as well, you know. We choose with our friends to overlook some of their faults, and we choose with the people we love to be gracious and kind. And sometimes we have to choose that aspect, you know. And so I would hope that anybody in a small town who maybe is is saying, well, I don't really love it here. It's like, well choose though choose to learn more about it and see what's valuable and find the good because i think we're we're often surprised at what we'll we'll run into you know yeah you know and i think that probably i mean i think it's the example of jesus um jesus wept over jerusalem i i'm almost sure that in the ultimate end of of anyone that's been successful they wept over their city Mm -hmm. they spent some very difficult days and nights um, wrestling with God, maybe even saying uh, to God, you know, I don't want to be here, but I know you've called me here. Yeah. And um, so therefore we're going to um, just d- use me, do what you have to do, break my heart if you need to break my heart, yeah. if that's what it's going to take for, for me to to engage in the city. So God Yeah, and thank you, Pastor Dennis, for just uh, taking the time to share today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. God bless. <laughs> Well, uh, from all of us at Rural Advancement, we are, again, just so grateful for you tuning in. Uh, Again, it is our goal every single week to bring you stories like this, conversations like this, that are not just directed to your church, but are spoken by people who have lived and ministered in these places. Uh, For this week, uh, you know, we hope that you share this podcast with people around you. We're found on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But true to rural fashion, the best way to share this podcast with others is just word of mouth. It's just to find another pastor who might benefit from these stories or teachings and say, hey, have you checked this out? Uh, So for now, I've been your host, Joe Epley. He has been Pastor Dennis Rivera. And we will see you next week.